Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another HPB episode of Behind the Knife. We're your HPB team with Dr. Dan Nelson from William Beaumont in El Paso and Dr. Freeland from Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio, accompanied by residents Connor Chick, Lexi Adams, and myself, Elizabeth Carpenter. Today, we're going to be tackling a challenging and somewhat controversial topic in HPB surgery, intraductal papillary mucinous neoplasms, or IPMNs. We'll focus on this topic for the next two episodes, starting with a clinical challenge episode today and an interview with a journal article review next. We're going to start off today with a case with some commentary and clinical pearls burst throughout. We hope you come away knowing a little more than when you started about IPMNs. Thanks, Beth. So we'll get started with the case presentation. So a 43-year-old woman presents after a motor vehicle collision and is found on axial imaging to have a 3.2-centimeter pancreatic cystic lesion. She is otherwise healthy with no other medical history. Lexi, what other information do you want to know? So we want to get some labs on her, such as LFTs and a CA-19-9, and then I would want some more dedicated imaging of her pancreas, like a CT of the pancreas. Perfect. Um, so before we talk about the CT scan, with what you know so far, what would be on your differential for this lesion? Well, this is the IPMN episode, so IPMN would be on the differential, as well as uh, mucinous cyst adenoma, a serous cyst adenoma, a pseudocyst, or something like a congenital cyst. Yeah, that's a great list. Um, so let's say your labs are back. They show normal liver enzymes and a normal bilirubin. Your CA-199 is pending. You get a dedicated three-phase CT pancreas, which demonstrates the following. You have a 3.2 centimeter cystic lesion in the body of the pancreas with clear connection to the main pancreatic duct. There is a thickened enhancing wall. The main pancreatic duct is eight millimeters in diameter. There are no mural nodules or lymphadenopathy, and the remainder of the pancreas looks normal. So Beth, with these CT findings, how does that alter your differential? So these are characteristics most consistent with an IPMN. Um, its location involving the main duct makes IPMN more likely than an MCN, um, despite the fact that this is a young female patient. Um, the size of the lesion and connection to the main pancreatic duct is consistent with a mixed type IPMN um, versus a main duct or branch duct IPMN. Yeah, typically a purely main duct IPMN wouldn't get to be that large. Um, but for example, if it started in a branch duct and then grew to involve the main duct, potentially it could be three centimeters in diameter and also involving the main duct. So let's talk in general terms about IPMN and why they can be such a challenge. Dr. Nelson, how do you think about IPMN in the broader context of pancreatic cystic lesions? Yeah, so I think, <clears throat> I think it's important to just take a quick step back and uh, look at the initial, you know, evaluation, right? So it's kind of one of the, the stable, unstable kind of situations, right? In this case, we're looking at a solid versus a cystic mass, right? That's, that's the first thing we're going to look at when we see a mass in the pancreas, solid versus cystic. Then in this case, we know it's cystic, right? And so we have kind of two broad categories that we could divide this into, right? This could be an inflammatory cyst, or it could be a neoplastic cyst, right? And uh, Lexi walked us through the, her differential, and she covered some of those categories. An inflammatory cyst is going to be your pseudocyst, right, which is usually going to be accompanied by some type of history associated with pancreatitis. 
So without that history, that makes an inflammatory pseudocyst unlikely. Then you have different categories of neoplastic cysts, right? You have your serous cyst adenomas, which are your essentially benign lesions, and they're very characteristic on imaging. So we should be able to determine what those are very quickly, right? So we should see some type of oligocystic appearance or um, polycystic or a honeycomb appearance, which is very characteristic of these lesions. They're typically in females in the sixth to seventh decade of life, and um, they can have a stellate type scar appearance. These are benign, so we can immediately kind of not be so concerned about those. But then you have this other category of neoplastic lesions um, or cysts that are concerning because they have variable degrees of risk of malignancy. And that's your mucinous cystic neoplasms um, and your introductal papillary mucinous neoplasm, right? Once we know that we're dealing with a pre-malignant lesion, then it's about the next step is going to be characterizing the risk of this being or developing into a malignant lesion. And that's how I kind of approach that in a stepwise fashion. So once I've gone through that stepwise approach and I'm concerned that this is a mucinous lesion, um, we, have to, we have to somehow determine that. And the best way to do that is through an endoscopic evaluation. We can do the imaging like uh, Lexi asked for, a, a CT pancreas, or even an MRI, MRCP, looking for some type of ductal connection. But really, it's going to be an aspirate and fluid analysis of that cyst, which is going to help us to characterize it as being a mucinous lesion or not. The things we look for when we do an aspirate are elevated CEA levels. Um, typically, uh, there, there hasn't been a uniform um, standard for this, but typically institutions will say greater than 192 is, uh, is uh, consistent or predictive of a mucinous lesion. The aspirate itself may be mucinous, right? So it may have, may have mucin within it. And then you see things like low glucose levels. Um, and if it's, a, if it's a solitary mucinous cyst, right, it should have low amylase level. Conversely, an introductal papillary mucinous neoplasm that has a ductal connection may have elevated amylase levels, right? Once you kind of characterize the lesion as being truly a mucinous lesion, and we know that those are essentially pre-malignant and have some variable degree of risk of developing into a malignant lesion, now we have to characterize the overall risk for that in order to determine treatment. That's great. Thank you for that um, explanation, that overview. Before we get back to IPMNs, um, just as a brief aside, Lexi, what do we typically do with mucinous cystic neoplasms? So if we're considering a mucinous cystic neoplasm, uh, typically we consider these pre-malignant. So we decide to resect them if the patient's an appropriate candidate. Um, we don't have a ton of data on the natural history of these mucinous cystic neoplasms because uh, they're not super common. And typically we see them in younger patients. So uh, they are good operative candidates and we do end up taking them out. How do you know it's an MCN versus an IPMN? So um, you would see mucin on the cytology and you would have a, a high CEA and a low glucose level. How would you so, differentiate this from mucinous right, versus right. a mucinous cystic neoplasm versus an introductal papillary mucinous neoplasm? Right, right. So it's a little bit of a trick question, right? Like you can't always tell the difference is the reality. So how do we really tell the difference? It's mainly by one history, two imaging characteristics, right? So MCNs, what are they going to look like on imaging? 
They're going to be cystic, yes. But where are they going to be and what are they going to look like? So MCNs are usually in the tail and um, may have calcifications on imaging. Okay, usually in the tail and can have calcifications in the wall. That's true. But that can be true of anything. You know, usually that, that stellate calcification in the middle is not mucinous, right? That's more for uh, SCNs. You can have some calcium in the rim, but generally they're just big. Generally they're... they're HL. Yeah, they, they, they tend to be larger and then more peripheral yeah. pancreas too, right? Yeah, so a large cyst in the tail of a young female in your head should be an MCN. Now, when are you going to know that it's an MCN? After you take it out. That's really the only way. So what do you see on pathology that says, yes, this was an MCN? This is a, a common abscite question. So um, I think you'll see uh, the ovarian stroma. So ovarian stroma is the, the sine qua non or the pathognomonic finding of a MCN. So you don't know it's an MCN until you take it out look under the microscope and you get ovarian stroma. The one the one challenge to that or caveat to that in the modern era is now GI has the ability to take these like bite biopsies through EUS. So our GI doctors are starting doing this where they can actually take a biopsy of the wall of the cyst. But there's a higher rate of pancreatitis when you do that. And in general, it just kind of seems like a bad idea. So I don't really know that they should be doing that because ultimately who cares? You know, if it's a four or five centimeter cyst and a 30 year old female, what are you going to do? Watch it for the next 70 years. So that that's kind of the way MCNs are. You said, we don't really know the natural history because they're always good candidates, but also because how long are you going to watch a four or five centimeter cyst in a, a mucinous cyst in anybody, right? So you have a 35 year old female with a 3.5 centimeter cyst in the tail of her pancreas, just do a distal pancreatectomy, right? You're not going to watch that for four decades. Um, and MCNs do tend to grow with time. So even if you did watch it, it would grow over the ne- next few years and then you'd take it out. So that's why we don't know the natural history because nobody makes it to 60 with an MCN. They all come out, okay? So we think that the risk of cancer is very high in those over time. But like you said, generally they come out, we, we don't really know that. That's the issue they- with all of these yeah. is that we don't have the denominator on any of these, right? So yeah. on any of these cysts, we don't know the natural history of the people who don't get resected. The other very rare thing is an MCN in a male, which can happen. And we think the risk of cancer is very high in those. But again, rare. We don't really know natural history. But if you ever hear about an MCN in a male, take it out for sure. But general rule, I would say MCN, take it out. Well, that was a great discussion. As we'll see later, there is some data to guide management of IPMNs when they're discovered. But unlike some of these uh, mucinous cystic neoplasms, but there is some heterogeneity in terms of the reported prognosis based on certain features. Um, which we will talk about shortly. Dr. Vreeland, can you help us understand why IPMNs are such a challenge in terms of decision-making? Um, and my, my other question related to that is, we're always told that it's important to distinguish between main duct and branch duct IPMN. Can you talk about the purpose of that distinction? Yeah, so uh, I think particular to IPMNs, what's so challenging about them is that the vast majority of them are sort of like these nothing burgers And then the real question becomes when to stop watching them. That's the thing is like pancreas cancer is incredibly scary, small side branch IPMN, nothing burger. And then what happens between those two? And it's very hard to kind of parse out. So we now, you know, we have these guidelines, we have some predictors of, uh, of developing into malignancy. So that's really where we have to focus the rest of the conversations. Or the second question you asked there was main, main duct versus branch duct. Why does that matter? Because main ducts are scary and branch ducts are not. And then there's kind of an in-between. So there's the mixed type where you have basically a side branch with some connection to the main duct. So 
you see a small cyst in the pancreas and it's away from the main duct and it has no obvious connection to the main duct, the chances that that ever becomes a cancer is very, very low. And so those are the ones that we'll talk about how to surveil them, but those are the ones you're going to do surveillance on a long time. Now, a main duct IPMN, a true main duct IPMN, you should take out 10 times out of 10 unless the patient is moribund or can't handle a big pancreas operation because there is a 30% chance that that already has cancer in it. And that's a really high chance. And, you know, again, pancreas cancer in a lot of ways is it's incurable. If you wait till the patient has pancreas cancer, you have waited too long. If you take out every branch duct IPMN you ever see, that would be malpractice. What I'm always shooting for when I'm operating on a pancreas cyst is I want to take out high-grade dysplasia. If I take out low-grade dysplasia, I've operated too early. If I take out a cancer, I've operated too late. The sweet spot is taking out uh, a high-grade dysplasia. And I, I said this to Connor earlier today. It's probably the only time in the life of a pancreas surgeon that they'll save a patient's life is when they take out high-grade dysplasia and assist. Because that patient would have developed pancreas cancer and they would have died of it. And you took it out before that happened. Now you got to watch the rest of the duct that could develop another cancer, et cetera, et cetera. But when you do a whip on a patient with pancreas cancer, you haven't cured them. You know, you feel good about your operation and that's all good and well, but you're never going to cure a patient with pancreas cancer, but you can prevent that cancer in a patient with a cyst and high grade dysplasia. And that's, you've really done that patient a service. So that's really the sweet spot here. So now that we have some background, let's go back to our case. Uh, just to summarize, we have a 43-year-old woman with an incidentally discovered 3.2-centimeter cystic neoplasm in the pancreas that has a thickened wall. Beth, how would you proceed in terms of next steps? Thanks, Connor. Um, you just described multiple cyst characteristics suggestive of an um, IPMN. So at this point, I'd proceed with an endoscopic ultrasound. Lexi, do you want to describe to the group how we break down some of these characteristics into worrisome features and high-risk stigmata and um, how this may actually guide our management? Yes. So these criteria, they all fall under these guidelines called the Fukuoka guidelines. Um, and specifically, these high-risk stigmata versus worrisome features are for side branch IPMN specifically. So um, to, to break it down, you have high-risk stigmata that are things that you really worry about cancer. So when you see high-risk stigmata, you want to operate, you want to take it out. Um, those stigmata, um, those are things like having a main duct greater than 10 millimeters without some other reason for it to be obstructed, like a pancreatic duct stone. Having a enhancing mural nodule greater than five millimeters. Again, if you see a large mural nodule, you're thinking about a mass that has cancer in it. So you want to take it out. Um, and then something like obstructive jaundice is also a high-risk stigmata. That means you have a firm mass um, that's causing obstruction, which is again, concerning for cancer. So those are the high-risk stigmata. And, and then you move into worrisome features. And these are things that are worrisome and might be cancer. And you either want to closely observe them or consider operating in the right candidates. These are things like you have a thickened or enhancing wall where there's a solid component in the wall. You have a mural nodule, but it's less than that five millimeter cutoff. You have an, a dilated main duct, but it doesn't quite hit the 10 millimeter mark. It's only between five to nine mil millimeters. Or you have abrupt caliber change within the duct um, with pancreatic atrophy uh, distal to it. So something that's still obstructing and causing uh, distal pancreatic atrophy. And then there's also size criteria. So anything greater than three centimeters um, is worrisome. 
anything with associated lymphadenopathy, uh, cyst that's growing, and the growth cutoff that they use is greater than five millimeters over two years, an elevated CA199 greater than 37, and then anything with a history of acute pancreatitis. And again, that's related to the fact that it means it's obstructed the duct at some point, um, which is worrisome that there might be something firm and potentially malignant within it. Yeah, so this is where side branch versus main duct can get really confusing with IPMN because some of these features, although they're meant for side branch IPMNs are, are suggestive that maybe there's something involving uh, the main duct, right? So something else that comes up on imaging sometimes is a fish mouth appearance at the ampulla. I noticed that's not listed as worrisome features or high-risk stigmata, but um, Dr. Breland, how do you typically think about that finding? Yeah, I think, you know, it's it's a finding on endoscopy. So it's something that your endoscopist should be looking for anytime they, they put a scope down. To me, it means there's mucin in the main duct. So you either have a main duct or a mixed type IPMN at that point. If you're sure that it's a main duct IPMN, you should probably be operating. You know, the guidelines say if the duct is over a centimeter, you know, one centimeter cutoff is sort of like a convincing size. But if I was at eight and saw a fish mouth on endoscopy, I would operate. And, you know, just to summarize, I think the Fukuyoka guidelines are very straightforward. Any of those high-risk stigmata, which is obstructive jaundice over a centimeter duct, mural nodule over five millimeters, you should be operating unless the patient is too sick to tolerate the operation. The other things fall into this kind of like, yeah, let's watch it. And then how closely you watch depends on the size and how many of those things. And that's all kind of subject to interpretation. There, There is, you know, very specific recommendation in these guidelines, but in practice, we don't always follow those perfectly. The more of that stuff that builds up, the more worried you are. And I will tell you, for me, I think mural nodules are very concerning to me. Assist making a nodule in the wall, to me, that's high-grade dysplasia. So that's the kind of patient that I'm either offering an operation or watching very, very closely. So to go back to our case, we have this 43-year-old woman with an incidentally discovered 3.2 centimeter cystic lesion that we need to better characterize. So Dr. Nelson, what would be your next step to to better characterize this lesion? Yeah, so I, I agree with Beth. I think that in this case, I would proceed with an endoscopic ultrasound and FNA. Um, you know, the thing about the Fukuoka guidelines, they're trying to guide you with some uh, pre-test probability that you're harboring high-grade dysplasia or at high risk of developing an invasive cancer. The endoscopic ultrasound and FNA provide some additional information towards that goal, okay, of better characterizing these lesions. In the first case, with the, with this lesion, we see a clear connection to the main pancreatic duct, but we're not sure that this is mucinous lesion yet. So doing an endoscopic ultrasound to characterize the lesion, get an FNA, and confirm it's mucin is going to be the first step. The other thing is the endoscopic ultrasound and FNA are going to provide additional information. We are going to be able to characterize a cyst fluid beyond just being mucin. We talked about its role in getting CEA levels. Now, mucin and elevated CEA do not tell us whether or not this is going to be a lesion with high-grade dysplasia or invasive cancer, but it does confirm that it's a mucinous lesion or at high risk of being a mucinous lesion. Quickly to that point, I think a lot of people get confused. They think, well, if the CEA is over 192, it's mucinous. If it's over 2000, then it's cancer. The CEA number, once you hit that cutoff for mucin, it's meaningless. So the only thing you can tell from a high CEA is yes or no mucin. Absolutely. 
the other thing that we're looking for on this this is you know aspiration and potentially a biopsy particularly in in a case where you have a thickened cyst wall or you have a mural nodule is going to be tissue and so cytology is generally pretty insensitive but you may have cells on your aspirate that are that show atypia which increases your suspicion for high grade dysplasia in phase of cancer and then the biopsy itself you may get enough tissue to be able to tell you you know is it malignant or not um, and then lastly, the, the important thing that we are getting now in modern, you know, treatment of these lesions and, and um, diagnostics of, the, of these types of lesions is mutational analysis, right? So KRAS mutation is pretty ubiquitous and tells you that you have a mucinous lesion. So in addition to having elevated CEA levels, in addition to finding mucin or having a KRAS mutation, those all are very confirmatory that you're dealing with a mucinous lesion and therefore a pre-malignant lesion, right? With a branch duct interductal papillary mucinoplasm, now we know that if you have concurrent KRAS and GNAS mutations, that you are dealing, in fact, with a branch duct IPMN, okay? So this is, this is a ton of information that you're getting just from, you know, examining the cyst fluid obtaining a biopsy, doing some mutational analysis. So very informative to guide treatment or surveillance. Awesome. Thank you. For patients who do undergo EUS for worrisome features, who don't have any additional high-risk stigmata and don't have any uh, biopsy findings that are consistent with malignancy, as we talked about before, the Fukuoka guidelines would tell us that we should proceed with surveillance imaging. So Lexi, what does that involve? So based on the Fukuoka guidelines, they separate their surveillance recommendations into size criteria. So for one centimeter, uh, two to three centimeters, and greater than three centimeters. For that uh, one to two centimeters, you repeat a CT or MR in two to three years. Uh, but if you fall within that two to three centimeter range, then you get a CT or MR every year for two years. And then you can lengthen that interval if uh, cyst doesn't grow. And then you also want to get an EUS in three to six months as well. And then if the cyst is larger, uh, greater than three centimeters, you use closer surveillance and you alternate between MR and EUS every three to six months. And then if it's a young and fit patient and you're considering surveilling this person over a very, very long period of time, you would just consider operating uh, earlier on. Perfect. Dr. Breland, how do you typically approach using these guidelines in practice? How do you decide between CT and MRI? And then when the guidelines make statements like consider surgery in young fit patients with the need for prolonged surveillance, what are the kind of things that you think about when you're making that decision or that consideration, uh, whether to offer an operation in those patients or not? Um, yeah. So I think CT MRI, I would almost always err on the side of using MRI because a lot of times these patients are going to require repeat imaging over and over and over again, and getting a, that many CTs is probably a bad plan. The one caveat to that is I always get at least one high quality CT before I go to the OR, and it has to be multi-phase, right? Because I really want to understand the arterial and venous anatomy anytime I'm touching the pancreas. So they're always going to get one high quality CT. But beyond that, I, I basically do MRI and EUS for all the imaging of these. Um, left and right, pancreatectomy are always different in my mind. So a Whipple versus a distal, it's kind of like the MCN discussion, right? A three centimeter MCN that's out on the tail of the pancreas, I'm taking that out every time. Or it's an IPMN. How do I know what, which one it is until I take it out? I don't. So a three centimeter cyst that's on the tail of the pancreas and a young patient who I'm going to have to watch for 40 years, 
I'm doing a distal pancreatectomy. Anything in the head, I'm going to, you know, take a second and think about it, right? So Whipple in anybody, you know, it's a tough decision. You know, if their duct is small, it's going to be a high risk PJ that makes it even harder. I got to be pretty convinced that I'm, I'm taking out high grade dysplasia before I'll do a Whipple. My threshold to do a distal is a little bit lower. What am I considering when a young, healthy patient one, you're going to have to surveil them for much longer. And two, they're going to get through the operation a little easier. But I think that there's a lot that goes into that. It's kind of hard to summarize. Look at their overall fitness, particularly for a Whipple. Anybody who's can't walk a mile and is not nutritionally fit, as we talked about in the um, pancreas cancer podcast, I would probably not do an operation because what are you taking out here, right? You're taking out a pre-malignant lesion. If your mortality is even close to 3%, 4% for that operation, you're probably not doing this patient any favor. The other, the other consideration with surveillance of these is when to stop. I think the hard truth is that we don't know when to stop. And there are reports of these progressing after years and years and even like a decade of no change. Unfortunately, at this point, we're kind of stuck doing surveillance on these for a very, very long time. Yeah. So let's talk about the converse of, as opposed to we're going to stop surveillance. Let's talk about the situation where we have a patient under surveillance for worrisome features um, and then something changes. So we're, we're surveying them for a reason. Let's say something changes with their imaging. Are there specific things for a patient down that pathway um, that would push you towards offering an operation? Obviously, you know, development of specific high-risk stigmata. Um, I think we would all agree that those are patients that probably should be offered an operation. But, you know, what if they just have an increasing number of worrisome features, for example? Yeah, I, I don't know that there's a, a specific right answer for that. As you get closer to these thresholds, you're going to offer surgery. It's not like like PDAC, where you meet the patient, they have a diagnosis of cancer, you're talking to them about chemo and surgery, right? You have a little time with these patients. And when I meet these patients, I generally talk to them about the operation the first time I meet them. And that way, if things change on the imaging, you've sort of prepared them. And so if you have a patient with worrisome features, you should have that discussion that time say, listen, we're not at a point yet where I think you need this, but we might get there. And so just mentally prepare them for that. And I think that helps when things change on the, on the next imaging, helps them kind of be prepared for it. Yeah, no, that's, that's great advice. As you mentioned, you know, these are situations where we're hoping to operate for high-grade dysplasia and prevent a cancer before um, it ever happens. The corollary to that would be how often does that happen? And do we know the answer to that? Um, and which was sort of leads us into the bigger question of over-treatment or under-treatment. And certainly this is a sort of a hot topic in other fields. Um, Dr. Nelson, where, where do you think we are on this right now with IPMN, uh, with the current guidelines? Um, do we have an answer to that question? And if so, what, what do you think? Yeah, I think there is some accumulating data. So the Fukuoka guidelines were initially published in 2006, revised in 2012, and then again in 2017. And each time what they're doing is trying to improve uh, selection of patients for surveillance versus surgery, right? And I think there's there's ample data that shows that we are operating less on uh, IPMNs, particularly branched up IPMNs, and surveying these patients, you know, for longer periods of time. One of the things that we're lacking in data collection with this disease process is really that denominator, right? What is the risk of progression in absence of resection? The rates that, like Dr. Reland, you know, uh, mentioned earlier, you have a range of invasive cancer and high-grade dysplasia and main duct IPMNs rate up to 60%, right? 
but we don't know how what percentage would progress with just observation. Same with uh, branch duct IPMNs, high-grade invasive cancer ranges from anywhere from 31 to 54%. But in the patients that are just observed and surveyed, we really don't know what their risk of progression is. But I think we are getting better at uh, appropriately selecting these patients, and we're operating on less. There was just a recent study from Johns Hopkins that showed that in resected patients, there's still a 24% rate of non-invasive progression following resection for a patient with if they had high-grade dysplasia or less. 24% will have non-invasive progression of the remnant pancreas. And in patients that had high-grade dysplasia or less and got resected, there was a f- almost 4% risk of invasive progression. So, so that highlights the importance of, yeah, we're trying to get better at selecting these patients for surveillance versus surgery, but we also have to adequately survey these patients long-term because they're still, their pancreas is still at risk, right? We haven't mentioned this yet, but this, is, this disease process is really a field defect. And it's encompassing the whole organ. And so even after resection, we have to continue to survey it. So let's bring it back to our case one more time. So let's say our patient wanted to avoid surgery up front and was started down the surveillance pathway. So you get your three-month MRI. Her cystic lesion is the same size, but now has a thickened wall. She has a six millimeter mural nodule and she has main duct dilation to 11 millimeters. um, And it's both distal and proximal to our cystic lesion. So Lexi, what would be your next step here? So at this point we have multiple higher stigmata. So my uh, suspicion that there's an invasive cancer um, within this is very high. So I would counsel her that she needs an operation at this point and then complete some staging, including a CA-99 level, as well as axial imaging of the liver looking for metastasis. As long as those are normal, then I'd proceed uh, with a distal pancreatectomy and a splenectomy. Perfect. Beth, let's say you take this patient to the OR and you go to perform your distal pancreatectomy. Is there anything in particular that you're thinking about with the margins, um, either intraoperatively or postoperatively? Yes. So I'd make sure during the operation to send a frozen section of my margin. And I'm specifically looking for whether or not those margins reveal high-grade dysplasia or invasive carcinoma, in which case um, I'd need to continue with my resection. You send your margins for frozen. Um, It comes back with low-grade dysplasia. What is your next step at this point? So um, with low-grade dysplasia, I would consider that a complete operation. Um, That being said, if the margins instead reveal high-grade dysplasia or invasive carcinoma, um, this is an increasingly complex situation. Um, Dr. Vreeland, could you talk us through what your thinking would be um, in these two scenarios? What am I going to do for margins for IPMN? Low-grade dysplasia, I'm done. I'm leaving it, leaving the operating room, right? High-grade dysplasia, I want to chase until I get negative. Cancer is controversial. If you have a patient with invasive cancer and you keep chasing margins and do a total pancreatectomy, that patient's unlikely to ever get any chemotherapy again. So doing a total pancreatectomy in the setting of cancer where it's not a curative operation is a bad idea, in my opinion. Some people would disagree with that, but I think it's a bad idea because you're not doing a curative operation. So there's a balance between curing the patient surgically and understanding what other therapies they need. Now, if you're talking about dysplasia, you can achieve a surgical cure. So that's where you should be more surgically aggressive in my eyes is 
High grade dysplasia, that's where you should chase and chase and chase. So in my opinion, you take any patient to the operating room with a main duct IPMN, they should be counseled for a total pancreatectomy. Because when you chase margins, you might have to go all the way to a total, right? And so if that patient can't tolerate a total pancreatectomy, different scenario, right? So a 80-year-old man who you know is not going to handle being a brittle diabetic, et cetera, you might say, I'm going to do my distal and stop. Don't even check the margin. Right. I'm going to take out what I think I can take out safely and get out the high grade dysplasia, hopefully. And if I have a positive margin, so be it. Maybe we can radiate the head later. But if you have a young, healthy patient who otherwise is going to do well and you could potentially cure them surgically, I would say go ahead and chase the margins if you keep getting high grade dysplasia. So left and right pancreatectomy are different. If you do a distal and you take it at the vein, how much further can you really go? Right. You can't run into the bile duct. That's the answer. So what a lot of people use radiographically is the GDA. So where the GDA comes down in the pancreas roughly estimates where the common bile duct is going to come down in the pancreas. So if you have a lesion that's extending beyond the GDA, continuing to take margins is dangerous because you might run into the bile duct. And if you dork up their bile duct, then you really hurt them, right? So in that case, it's better to just do a total. Chase margins until you're worried about the bile duct and then just do a total. If you're doing a Whipple and you're chasing margins, you just take it, you know, a centimeter or two centimeters at a time, and then you cross your arms and wait for the frozen to come back. Uh, and then when it comes back positive, you take more. But again, I, I think that anytime you take a patient with uniform dilation of the whole pancreatic duct or even minimal dilation of like the last bit of the duct, you got to assume, like Dr. Nelson said, this is a field defect that this IPMN extends throughout their whole pancreatic duct. And where does the high-grade dysplasia end? You don't really know until you send it for frozen. So be ready to do a total in that situation. Or if you say, no way I'm doing a total, have a, have a cutoff in your mind, right? So if you leave two or three centimeters of the pancreas, you may think that's not going to do much, but what it provides is glucagon, right? So they're not going to be a super brittle diabetic where they dip and go low. So that's where patients die is when they get hypoglycemic after a total pancreatectomy. Leave a little bit of pancreas and you'll prevent the hypoglycemia. The other thing that's changed over the last few years and is going to change over the next decade is continuous glucose monitors. And now artificial pancreases will probably come out at some point. So continuous glucose monitors, most of my patients that have bad diabetes have these now, and it's great. So it basically has a little monitor and then they can also sync it up with their phone. And if they're glucose drops below 70 in the middle of the night, it'll wake them up. So that's when, you know, a lot of these patients die is they die in their sleep because their glucose goes down to like 20 and they don't wake up. So um, I think continuous glucose monitors have decreased the risk a little bit. 90 day perioperative mortality of a tonal pancreatectomy, probably about 10%. That's a really high number. So, you know, just keep that in mind that a total pancreatectomy is an extremely morbid operation. You're a terribly brittle diabetic after that. But if you could cure a patient from pancreas cancer, maybe it's worth the risk. But have all that stuff worked out in your head before you get to the operating room. You don't want to be thinking about this in the operating room as you're getting frozen sections back. Oh, man, what if I have to do a total? Be prepared for that scenario. Yeah, this is, that's a, a very important message and take home for like the general surgery trainees out there preparing for their boards, right? Given an IPMN, counseling the patient for the potential of a total pancreatectomy is critical aspect of your counseling, right? Because if you don't counsel them, the examiner may take you there. In large multi-institutional series have shown that in, with IPMN, up to 20% of patients 
will end up with a total pancreatectomy. So you have to be, they have to be appropriately counseled. You have to be selecting your, your patients appropriately. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, he talked about this, Tim talked about this with invasive, right? You have to balance the morbidity of the operation. This always comes up with margins for lots of different cancers. You have to balance the morbidity of the operation with the biology of the tumor. And if you're chasing and chasing and chasing margins, that's likely an indicator that your surgical technique is not going to overcome the poor biology of that patient. One final thought on margins. If you have an invasive component and your margin comes back positive for high-grade dysplasia, Lexi, do you care about that? I mean, yes, you would. No, you don't. You don't care at all. This is analogous in breast surgery to this thing with with the two millimeter margin on DCIS, right? So we we worry about two millimeter margin on DCIS, but then if there's an invasive component, all of a sudden we don't care about that anymore. It's because what is your highest risk? The high grade dysplasia at the margin is a risk for development of an adenocarcinoma at that duct that's still affected, but you already have adenocarcinoma. So who cares about your risk of potentially developing an adenocarcinoma down the road, you know, local recurrence, these patients die of systemic disease. So all you care about now is treating their systemic disease. Don't chase any kind of margin when they have invasive adenocarcinoma of the pancreas, their risk is entirely of systemic disease. Get them to systemic therapy. So if you have high-risk stigmata in your IPMN, it is reasonable to actually cut through what you think the worst area is and send that for frozen. And if that has an invasive component, then you no longer care about the high-grade dysplasia at your margin. Again, you got to kind of separate just IPMN with high-grade dysplasia, which is something that can be surgically cured from invasive adenocarcinoma of the pancreas, which absolutely cannot be surgically cured. There's kind of this confusing thing where like, well, if the cancer is more aggressive, I should be more aggressive. That is not true, right? You should be surgically aggressive when you can, like Dr. Nelson said, when you can beat the biology. I can beat the biology of high-grade dysplasia with surgery. I cannot beat the biology of adenocarcinoma of the pancreas with surgery. So when you have adenocarcinoma somewhere in that, you actually should pull back and be less surgically aggressive. So let's say we do our, our pancreatectomy for what we think is an IPMN. And let's, let's say it does come back with invasive cancer. Our margins are clear. Beth, what would be your next step postoperatively for this patient? So uh, with an invasive component um, in our resected specimen, I would refer the patient for adjuvant chemotherapy post-op. Beth, so that, that's great. We're going to have to treat with adjuvant therapy, okay? What else are you going to do for this patient long-term? Um, so this patient will also need surveillance long-term. What are you surveilling for, right? A patient with pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma that didn't come from a cyst, you're just basically looking for what? Liver mets, right? But this patient, what do you specifically have to look for? Recurrence within the pancreas. Yeah, so it's not that different, right? But you're just gonna pay more attention to the duct. One tough thing is that when you do a Whipple on somebody and you sew their pancreatic duct to the jejunum, the pancreatic duct will almost always dilate. So Mm -hmm. you're gonna see some dilation for the first six to nine months or a year after a Whipple. But if that continues to progress in a patient with a history of an IPMN, it's got to send off some red flags for you. And okay. every once in a while, you're going to have a patient like this who you'll need a completion pancreatectomy, or I guess, you know, not every once in a while, like Dan said, 20% of the time. So you just got to keep an eye on those patients, particularly the ones who have a lot of main duct involvement uh, up front. Okay, great. So that was an awesome discussion about management of a mixed duct IPMN. And I want to thank everyone for participating in the case. 
As we wrap up the episode, I wanted to ask our staff to take us through a few more scenarios to round out the discussion. Dr. Raylan, we touched on it a bit earlier, but as we get to the finish line, can you take us through management of a main duct IPMN? So what is a main duct IPMN? It, it's not as straightforward as you might think, right? So the the thing you'll see is basically the whole pancreatic duct is dilated, or maybe not the whole, but most of the pancreatic duct is dilated. How do you know that's a, a main duct IPMN? It can be hard to actually know that. So what it comes down to is if you have this dilation of the main duct, usually more in the head than the tail, but not always, uh, and you don't have another explanation. And in those situations, you sort of have to assume it's a, a main duct IPMN. You can, you know, have the GI doctors look for mucin from the ampulla, fish mouth, things like that. You know, there are even scenarios where you might have them cannulate the main duct and draw off some fluid and you can send for CEA and, and send it for cytology and, and see if there's mucin there. All those things could confirm the diagnosis for you. But the bottom line is a lot of times it's just a dilated main duct and you don't have another explanation for it. And that's sort of uh, main duct IPMN until proven otherwise. The really tough scenario, and it's not very common, but kind of the board scenario kind of a situation is the whole duct is dilated and it all looks the same. What operation are you going to do? You know, it doesn't come up very often, but, you know, potentially that could come up and you have to try to figure out which side is is sort of quote unquote worse so that you can start somewhere and do a Whipple or a distal and then chase your margin from there. The vast majority of the time, the head is going to be worse. It's going to start in the head. So a lot of times you're doing a Whipple and then chasing the margin from there. Um, but could it come up with a scenario where you have a distal and then you got to chase margins to the patient's right? Potentially, yes. Uh, one thing that can be helpful there, I don't want to get in the weeds, but some GI doctors can actually do pancreatoscopy, kind of like spyglass for the bile duct, but they put a spyglass into the pancreatic duct and they can look at the main duct and try to figure out where the IPMN starts. But that's the scenario where you're going to be uh, most commonly chasing margins is a main duct IPMN that extends really far along the duct. Yeah. And one last quick scenario. It's, it's so, we, we love this topic. We, we love this uh, disease site and we could talk about it forever. There is one other important scenario that general surgery trainees should be aware of in preparation for their general surgery boards. Okay. And that's branch side branch IPMNs are classically multi-cystic. So you will have two cysts, right? You'll have one in the tail one in the head of the pancreas. One of them typically is going to have the more worrisome features. The other one is going to be classically benign. So a classic scenario would be a four centimeter pancreatic tail cyst with a mural nodule. Maybe it's a mixed branch, you know, mixed duct IPMN. It's got some uh, main duct dilation, but the cyst in the head of the pancreas is one centimeter. It has a uh, you know, clear connection to the main pancreatic duct with no worrisome features, right? How are you going to address this? And it goes back to the topic we brought up a couple of times now, and that is the field defect. You're going to treat the more worrisome, right? And you're going to continue to survey the more benign appearing, right? So in what I've just presented, you would do your distal pancreatectomy and you would survey the head of the pancreas, right? So if you're given two, you know, you're going to treat the more aggressive, you're going to monitor the less aggressive appearing. Thanks, Dr. Nelson, for a great conclusion to our discussion on IPMNs as part of the Clinical Challenges in HPB Surgery series. In our next episode, we plan to talk through a journal article followed by an interview regarding management of IPMNs. Thanks, everyone, for sticking with us, and we'll see you next time. 
Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.